Some of you are going to find this a bit incredulous, but here's something that federal, state, and local governments all tell us to do that we should actually listen to. Eat more fruits and vegetables. You've heard about the health benefits of increasing plant-based nutrients into your diet, but how can you easily consume all the fruits and veggies needed? Well, it's easy. By adding Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity into your meals. Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity is a power blend that has 31 fruits and vegetables in every scoop. Organic vegetables, super greens, super fruits, and super sprouts. It is fortified with essential vitamins plus an immunity boost. And right now, you can get a free two-week supply of Grown American Superfood and Essential Vitamins Plus Immunity by just paying $8.95 for the shipping and handling. And not only that, you'll also get a free frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown American drink. Go to grownamericansuperfood.com forward slash John and order today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. So what's worse, being robbed or being scammed? I mean, for many of us, being robbed has a kind of integrity to it. You were harmed, you were wronged. But when you're scammed, when you're conned by someone, there's often a feeling that, you know, somehow it's partially also your fault. And this can lead to all kinds of feelings of humiliation and self-recrimination. It's much more twisted than just the simplicity of being robbed because you feel guilt while the person who scams you feels none. It's dirtier than thievery. And the fear of being somehow cheated can, of course, cause all matter of paranoia, affect all of our decision-making, which isn't all that much healthier than just being gullible. An outstanding new book studies the psychological dynamics of cons and tricks and scams and how humans can live with integrity in a world of scammers and suckers. Tess Wilkinson-Ryan is a law and psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania Cary Law School. She studies the moral psychology of legal decision-making, teaching courses in contracts, consumer law, and leadership. Her excellent, gripping, and really endlessly fascinating book is Foolproof, How Fear of Playing the Sucker Shapes Ourselves and the Social Order and what we can do about it. In the book, she explores how the sucker construct, our, our fear of, of being seen to play the fool, can shape and distort human decision-making from our choices about how we date, how we shop, how we deal with our neighbors, how we treat the less fortunate, as well as politics and international relations. Shame is a fascinating thing, and it keeps us from talking about our universal human fears of being swindled and looking dumb. It is a great pleasure to welcome Professor Tess Wilkinson-Ryan to SiriusXM. Hello. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us and for writing this book. It's rare to find a book that's about things we think about all the time and never talk about. I'd like to ask you about the, the fear of suckerdom. How do you define this anxiety of, of playing the fool and, and how does it affect our decisions? Yeah, there's a particular experience, a particular human experience that I think most people probably will recognize as soon as we talk about it, which is that there are certain kinds of harms or losses that flow from situations where people have ostensibly sort of assented or consented to a transaction. 
and then gotten the short end of the stick. For whatever reason, Ben thought that they were getting one kind of a setup and in fact lost out in a way that feels unfair and feels like a real harm. Yes. And it's a particular kind of loss that's different, as you say, from like getting robbed or pickpocketed or ran even randomly targeted in a hack mm -hmm. because you have yourself to blame in a bunch of ways that feel really embarrassing. So you have both the fact that you have lost out on something and you have to reckon with the fact that you feel this super intense feeling of regret and also of shame or humiliation. Yeah, I mean, it's not really guilt. It is shame. And anyone who was raised overly Catholic knows how precarious that could be. I got to say, though, I found it amazing how political the book is and spiritual as well. But it seems that one of the constant themes of the book is not just about people who are wary of potential scams. It's also about being wary of the wrong kind of scam. One of the, the parts of the book is that people are always terrified of being taken advantage of by people who they consider to be below them in some kind of social hierarchy. And yet we're yeah. less concerned about the more familiar kinds of scams, which would come from people above us in positions of power. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to try to one of the threads I wanted to sort of pull through as I was writing this book was the ways that I see rhetoric about scams and suckers being sort of weaponized in political discussions where there's oftentimes warnings that someone is coming for your stuff or your rights. Always. This gets deployed, I think, a lot in conversations about immigration. So the weaponization sort of goes like this. You think that what you're doing is something compassionate or humanitarian when you are in favor of things like humanitarian asylum policies, but actually these are people who are coming for your jobs. If you honor that compassionate instinct of yours, you're going to be the sucker. Or you think that you want to be helpful toward, you know, Americans in need. You know, you want to favor broader welfare policies. Well, actually, you should feel like the sucker because people just want to, you know, sit home and take their free benefits. That kind of it, that kind of rhetoric, I think, is meant to warn people away from their instincts that are otherwise instincts toward things that they would value, like compassion, generosity, fairness, that yeah. kind of thing. It's so it's like a mind hack that keeps you from adhering to the morals you claim to have. We saw this with the marriage equality debate back in the zeros where the narrative they put forth was, well, giving equality to LGBT people for marriage will somehow affect traditional marriage. And we were sold this meme for years that if they got what you have, somehow you're losing something. Yeah, that they're going to ruin it for everybody else. It's a soup. It's a really interesting set of political conversations. I've actually seen it a little bit very recently in some of the student loan forgiveness debates. Yes, totally. You know, where the rhetoric is, if you forgive some people's student debts, then all the people who, for example, already paid theirs off are the suckers. That's right. Which is a, it's a really interesting framing. It's a way of framing a policy as being about something arguably unrelated, which is what is the right way to treat people who have paid off their student loans is, is a super interesting question, but not obviously at the center of what is, you know, how can we do right by student debtors in the current moment? Yeah, it's it, it's about, you know, well, I, I believe in helping the needy, but not someone needier than me. You know, it, it seems like <laughs> it's all about this, this heightened fear of being made to look like a sucker 
and it's always by marginalized groups. It's always by, oh, those those undocumented immigrants at the border who are seeking asylum here and don't speak the language are going to take my job at the bank away yep. from me. You know, pol- so much political rhetoric invokes the idea of people being suckered. But except for a few politicians, they're not talking about being suckered by those in the aristocracy or the patriarchy. It's always about those who have less that are going to come and take from you. I think that's right. And I think also oftentimes it's triggered by almost um, implicit or subtle cues that don't quite own up to what they're doing. So that, you know, we have conversations about things like, you know, the mainstream media or like, you know, big pharma that are meant to describe exploitative structures, but oftentimes the warnings in context of things like immigration or social welfare policy are like a little bit more sort of subtle and snide, kind of triggering the fear of being a sucker without like engaging deeply in what this really means. Because there is a sense to which once you get to the part about engaging deeply, I think a lot of people are like, well, actually, I think that the most important thing here would be that I pay attention to my values in this area, not to my implicit fears that I'm going to look a little stupid. Yeah, it comes back to a social hierarchy. And so often, as you point out in the book, we're so terrified of having our social status lessened in some way. Uh, And anyone who has limited status to begin with is like, oh, I can't afford to lose more of this. And it makes us meaner out of this sucker fear. You, You had this great example about if your bank calls to say there's a suspicious charge on your account yeah. as opposed to ending child poverty and a guy with a clipboard outside a store. Can you break yeah. down that fear? Because I think you really crystallize it. Yeah, sure. It, so I'm trying to sort of tweak the intuition, you know, to sort of, I think, to make an intuition that people can get can wrap their hands around. I think a lot of times it really helps to have a concrete example. Um, totally. And I have certainly experienced something like this myself. So think about two similar situations in which you get a call from your bank that your credit card has an unusual charge on it, has a suspicious charge. You can imagine in one case, you get an alert from your bank, there's been some sort of random hack that's tried to charge $20. You talk to the person at the bank, you say, this was not, this isn't me, please remove the charge. The bank says, okay, and they, t- they remove the charge. Then imagine that you get a call from the bank, suspicious charge, but actually you know what the charge is from because you yourself gave your credit card number to a person with a clipboard, as you say, who was trying to advertise, you know, I'm collecting money for some kind of an international children's fund. And in fact, the charge has gone through with something ridiculous, like, you know, easy games is com, or you know, some right. outrageous, I have, I think I myself have actually had a charge from that, from that, right. from something like that. And so you tell the bank, oh, shoot, right? You should please block the charge. That was a scam. Okay. In either case, arguably, you only lost a couple minutes of time. Right. You lost no money in either case. No money. Right. And I think in the former case, if it's just a random hack, you don't even, you don't lose much. uh, The annoyance is quickly forgotten. My bank will fix it. Yeah, it's done. My bank will fix it. And the bank will fix the other one too. But I think you feel worse. I think you feel a lot worse because you're experiencing a bunch of human emotions that go along with feeling suckered, humiliation and regret and self-blame and probably a lot of anger too. So even though the material loss is the same across both situations, the experience of the scam is way more intense. So the book is trying to ask, what are the consequences of that intensely aversive feeling? And one of the consequences that sort of you can imagine flowing naturally from this situation would be a real wariness about your impulse to be generous later on. That's it. I think that that's, 
I think that's really a concern. I think there's all kinds of reasons to make sure that you're verifying, right? That you're trying, that you're giving your money to, let's imagine that you're trying to donate money. You want to make sure, yeah, I want this to go to someplace reputable. I want it to go to someplace that has low overhead costs so my money is as effective as possible. But in fact, the small possibility of risk can have this outsized role when the risk is specifically the risk of being scammed. And that seems like a bummer (laughs) in the context in which there are real values behind the sort of generous or altruistic impulse. Yeah, because the guy with the clipboard who wanted to help child hunger, you looked them in the eye. There's a sense of agency that somehow I played a role in my own suckerdom. And that's what stings. And that's what will influence our behavior and our open heartedness and open mindedness in the days to come. I love these sucker narratives that you that you lay out. What was it that made you decide to write this book? Oh, it's a great question. I've been thinking about this for for about 15 years now, uh, in part because I went to law school, you know, after college. And when I was in law school, started getting interested in the ways that people kind of misunderstand what legal rules are, because they have kind of moral intuitions that suggest to them about what the law should do. And so I went from law school and got a PhD in psychology. And while I was in this PhD program, I started writing about contracts, the psychology of contracts. And it's a little bit of a, obviously it's a very niche niche area, which is kind of what you have to do to be an academic. But so I would send out these questionnaires to people because I wanted to know what do people think that contract law is all about? How do they think about their own contracts? Right. And I would send out these very, I can't even describe to you how bland and boring these scenarios would be. It would be a scenario about a contract that got breached, but the scenario would be like, Bob owns a condominium that he doesn't live in and he's getting the floors in that condominium refinished. And the floor refinisher breaches the contract because he got a different, better offer. And I would ask people like, what should the floor refinisher have to do to compensate Bob in that situation? It's all like, there's no, you know, Bob's not like getting any psychic value, I don't think out of the floor. He doesn't even live there. But people would say that the floor refinisher should have to pay Bob, not just compensatory damages, but like punitive damages. And mm-hmm. just for what it's worth, as a matter of contract law, there's no, there are no punitive damages in contracts. So that alone was like, whoa, that's a place where people are really, their intuitions are in tension with the legal rule is. At the end of these surveys, I'd put a little free response box, like, do you have any comments for me? Well, how was the study or whatever? And people would write things that I did not expect that were like all caps, Bob has been betrayed. This is what's wrong with America today people don't keep their word. And I was like, whoa, there are a lot of strong feelings associated with this relatively low-key breach of contract. And it really gave me the sense that, I mean, that I was sort of onto something in terms of thinking about the psychology. And later on, I started to follow this up. And what I was finding was people thought breach of contract is disrespectful. It makes the non-breaching party feel like a sucker. And that's where the core of the harm is. So that's how I got interested in suckers originally was in this kind of small area of my academic life. Mm -hmm. But I kind of kept pulling, I kind of kept revisiting it over the years and taking note of where I saw it pop up in other areas, other sort of areas of financial decision making, as well as we talked about like political decision making, and even things in my own, you know, regular family life as a parent and a spouse and a daughter. Sure. I mean, but but one of the themes that keeps coming back to is that, you know, being a sucker or being made to feel like a sucker is sort of a a generator for prejudice. I mean, we all have prejudices within all of us and we try to monitor those and we try to be a better person and we know how we're supposed to act. But you have a 
you have a graph in the book that shows how we tend to stereotype other groups of people based on the amount of both competence and warmth we think they have. And I yeah. found this just totally fascinating. Can you break down this graph? Like housewives and seniors are seen to be of very high warmth, but of very low competence. It's amazing looking at this and seeing how we have been socialized to, well, let's not say prejudge, uh, size people up a certain way. So this is a really interesting body of research by, it's. this is a body of research that was sort of changed, I think, the way people understand group stereotyping is came out of a group of psychologists from Princeton, I think in the mid 90s, early 2000s. And I found this model of how humans understand each other to be really compelling. So the gist of the model, and then I'll say how I sort of take it in my own sucker direction. But the gist of the model is, imagine humans are sort of meeting each other in some sort of pre-civilization context. What are they trying to find out about each other as fast as they can? They're trying to find out, is this person on my team or against me? Right. This is just the shorthand is warmth. So high warmth or low warmth, but that really means ally or enemy. Yes. The other thing I want to know about this person, whether they're an ally or an enemy, I still want to know, are they competent or not competent? Because if, for example, they are an incompetent enemy, I don't need to worry too much. <laughs> mm -hmm. Whereas a competent enemy is a real threat. Similarly, if they are an incompetent ally, probably I have to take care of them. But if they're a competent ally, maybe they're going to help me out. So this is this, it's, it's kind of an interesting way of thinking about it, right? About like the, about the rapid, the rapid social perception task that people are engaging in yes. when they're trying to size up other humans. It's incredible. It blew my mind when I first read about this. This was one of the things that I, that I read about when I was in grad school and, you know, heard lectures about from people who were doing the original work. And I thought, this is an incredibly compelling way of thinking clearly about what the content is of stereotypes. Because oh, part of the yeah. argument is from these authors that stereotypes about other groups, about groups of people, have content to them. It's not just like raw animus. It's not just, I don't like this group. It's, I believe that they are this kind of people. So a stereotype that is, for example, is about feminists, which I, yeah. <laughs> I'm referring to myself here, but the stereotype is, competent, but cold, comp, right? Yes. So against me, but good at what they do. That By the way, so sniper, snipers are classified mm. just like feminists on this graph. High competence, yeah. low warmth. So there's a whole body, for people who are interested, there's a whole body of incredibly interesting evidence about the ways that different stereotypes, the way that different stereotypes look. I mean, in part depending on who you ask and in part depending on when you ask the questions. Yes. So as you can imagine in the US, the ways that, for example, women are stereotyped has some things that stay the same over time and some things change pretty rapidly because of the changing roles of, for example, women in the workforce, that kind of a thing. I think one of the things that became clear to me when I started looking at this research is that there are a lot of embedded narratives in these stereotypes about people being schemers or fools, that a lot of the content of stereotypes of racial and ethnic stereotypes in particular is about is this group trying to put one over on me mm -hmm. and that's a really potent prejudice we're going to take a very quick break we'll be right back this is progress what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way Maybe it's pursuing your passion 
while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I'm John Fiegel saying this is Sirius XM Progress. I think one of the prejudices in your book that made me the angriest and there's quite a lot to be angry about but it's the treatment of mothers and you have a chapter called mother sucker and you know we all (laughs) we all revere our own mothers right but you talk about this deep bait and switch of motherhood where we all revere our own and we all talk about how important mothers are and how how much we care about mothers but as you write women caring for children are perceived across the board as being of lower status than other women and lower status than men of any caregiving situation. You talk about a study finding that women who breastfeed in public are judged to be less competent at work. This is so embedded in all of us. Yeah, this particular chapter, you know, I, I did not go into the into writing a book about suckers thinking I was going to write about mothers, but the examples kept coming my way. I also say I was writing this, I did the writing of this book in 2021, basically. So the pandemic is ongoing. And I myself was watching women like me with younger kids at home feeling like, are we the only backup plan here? Is it just us? Is there no social safety? Like, is there no priority for caring for children in this society? You know, this sort of schools close. And it felt like this, you know, as you say, deep bait and switch. So one of the sort of tensions I wanted to play with a little bit or pull out in the book was that there's a lot of reverential talk about motherhood you know, oh, yeah. as Americans, mom and apple pie, super moms, you know, all the kinds of mm-hmm. mom talk that's really, you know, feels sort of sentimental and sort of honoring of the of mothers, but like incredibly little delivery on the promise. My own experience having a child for sure was of a noticeable shift in the way the world treated me when I was in my role as a mother. And I really had the sense like my stock has dropped here in ways that in ways that were, I was for sure taken aback a little bit. And I think that that's the experience of a lot of women. And then when I read this study, so the study is called something like, I'm gonna, try, I'm gonna get a little bit wrong, but it's something like when professional women become mothers, warmth doesn't cut the ice. It's, it's something Oof, like that. Right. It's killer. And basically it's just, they just asked people to say, how warm is a person, I'll describe in a second, how warm is this person? How good are they at their job? So how kind, how competent at work? And they just gave people a scenario describing an MBA who's a consultant, basic facts about this person's work life. But the MBA was either named Kate or named Dan. MBA <laughs> consultant either did or did not have a young child. When Dan, <laughs> Dan and Kate, were, when they didn't have kids, they were similarly competent. When Dan had a kid, he was a little warmer. 
and still real competent. Oh, yeah. What a guy. Kate had a kid. When Kate had a kid, she was warmer, but less competent. That's a hard one to swallow, I have to say. And there are other studies suggesting similar kinds of prejudices, among other things, even about the quality of women's parenting. So a lot of women have this sort of anecdotal sense, like, you know, when I'm out with my kid, I get a lot of like, people are difficult with us, whereas if my husband takes their, the kid out, everyone's like, what a dad, so involved. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, this is the science of prejudice. You, you've written this masterpiece about, That's you know, why we're all subject to this. And of course, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Donald Trump, who is literally someone who had to pay $26 million in scam fines for swindling Americans with a fraudulent online university. And yet he was a master of weaponizing the sucker rhetoric. You talk about how from 2011, Trump's entire narrative was that white American men are getting scammed. And they're being scammed by a rich guy like him, but he was able to ride that all the way. He was able to grift off of the concept that someone's grifting you. No, it was, I think he was incredibly effective at deploying the rhetoric of suckers, basically arguing to constituents or to his fans or followers, if you don't subscribe to my sort of protective xenophobic policies, if you don't agree with me, then you are playing the fool. Mm -hmm. And I think it's such a, I think he knew that people take this seriously. And I think he probably knew also that it's a view that resonates as a sort of a, as like a macho view. It has a certain, right. It's, it's trying it to play to, I think, a version of masculinity in part that Mm -hmm. says what it means to be the strong guy is to at all costs prevent other people from taking advantage. And it's funny because, I mean, I think that the core accusation of his presidency was of how exploitative it was, right? The ways in which that he could, and yet he was able to convince a lot of people that the scams were coming from somewhere else. What they really had to fear was immigration or trade wars with China or that kind of thing. I know. This is a guy who literally outsourced his own manufacturing to China, warning people that their jobs were going to go to China. And it's just, it's incredible. People are so scared of being seen as a sucker that they will make themselves suckers. And so that that leads to the million dollar question, Professor. How how do people who don't want to be gullible and are very mindful of not being gullible, how do we get over living our life in fear of being played for a sucker? So uh, yes, you are right. That's the million dollar question. So and of course, I don't have all the answers. What I have is a an approach, I guess. So one of the arguments that I'm trying to make is that people overweight their fear of playing the sucker. They let it take up too much space in their decision making, in part because if you fail to name it, like if you fail to say, look, I'm deciding between two options, one of them makes me worried, I'm going to look like a fool. Oftentimes we don't say that out loud, right? Right. You don't say the worry is I'm going to look like a fool. Oftentimes it's kind of like a back of the mind nagging feeling that kind of contaminates all of the elements of the decision making. And so one of the arguments is, look, I understand that people do not want to play the fool and that there's good reasons to not let yourself be tricked all the time, of course. The approach is be explicit about that. Be explicit about the fear, the worry, the exact thing you're concerned about, because only by being explicit about it can you sort of give it the right amount of 
leverage or weight in your own decision-making process. So yeah. my um, kids always groan if I try to take out like a piece of graph paper when they're trying to <laughs> make a hard decision about something and map it out. But I really do think that the way to clear-headed decision-making, especially when things are thorny, competing values, right, is to sort of say, okay, look, what are my actual values here? And to what extent do my different choices vindicate yes. those values? Yes. Do I yeah. forfeit my humanity to avoid the potential exactly. risk of looking silly, or am I willing to put faith into a situation and right. risk looking like a fool because I want to be a better person? And and, and that's really it. That's I right. mean, we have to be willing to be played the fool in a situation and yeah. not forfeit our values for it. I think oftentimes the risk of being played actually is relatively low risk anyway. Right. And there's a lot of times where you say, you know, I'm not sure there is a there's a small risk. This thing is actually a scam or a small thing that I'm actually being played by somebody else here. But it's still small. I still think the 90 percent chance here is that this is exactly what I think it is. And given that that's the case, what I ought to be doing is sort of, you know, making choices in line with my own values, not overweighting this risk of something I don't want to happen. Tess Wilkinson-Ryan is a law and psychology professor at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School. Her excellent, gripping, totally fascinating new book is Foolproof, How Fear of Playing the Sucker Shapes Ourselves and the Social Order and What We Can Do About It. Uh, professor, I could talk to you for days about this. Thank you so much for joining us. What a, what a fascinating book. I, I'm so glad you read it. And it made me think of uh, just so many uh, unpleasant and hopeful dynamics at the same time. Please come back anytime. Uh, I'd love to talk about this Thank research Thank you so more. much. Thank you. This is awesome. Thanks. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great one. And we'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. F. Murray Abraham is busy. I mean, he's always busy. He's been busy with film work for many years. All the President's Men, Scarface, The Name of the Rose, Mighty Aphrodite, my God, you're funny in that, Star Trek Insurrection, Old Mustafa in the Grand Budapest Hotel, Inside Lewin Davis. He won the Academy Award for a little scene independent film called Amadeus you might have heard of. The man's always busy in the theater. Obie Awards for Uncle Vanya and Obie for The Merchant of Venice. Drama Desk Award for the late, great Terrence McNally's It's Only a Play. This man has played Lear. He's played Malvolio. I saw him as Roy Cohn in Angels in America. But this current decade, it is amazing how much F. Murray Abraham is working. It is relentless. It is glorious. Between Mythic Quest for Apple, the voice of the ancient Egyptian god Khonshu in Marvel's Moon Knight, an astonishing performance 
in Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities. He was here two months ago. We talked all about you. And, of course, his Golden Globe-nominated performance as Burt DeGrasso in HBO's White Lotus. Now he is opening the new film The Magic Flute, a lush musical fantasy opera about an orphan boy studying in Mozart's music school who discovers a mystical gateway into a fantasy world of Mozart's opera itself. This movie is not like anything playing in cinemas right now. F. Murray Abraham, what a joy. Welcome to SiriusXM. What a wonderful introduction. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> it's your resume. You made it easy, and I had to trim down a lot for that. <laughs> You're very nice. You mentioned Roy Cohn. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm delighted. I, I, I want to talk about Magic Flute, of course, because uh, it's coming out soon, and I really like this director and producer so much. They were so good to me. But uh, the Roy Cohn was particularly difficult because I, first of all, you have to do that play if it's mm-hmm. if you have an opportunity. It's one of the greatest plays of, of incredible of that whole film. Yes, two of, plays. Of, it's two. I mean, it's it's a great two plays. Yeah, and I played anyhow. As you know, I played both of them. But uh, but Roy, who appears in both of them, Roy uh, personally, I just detested him. Yes. And that got in the way of the performance. After a lot of time in the business, you begin to be able to rely on your technique. You don't have to worry about it. It will work. So that even if you're not getting something, you're presenting a decent, acceptable performance. That's not good enough. Of course. Yes. You know when it's super. You know when it's not super, too. And it's awful, especially on the stage, because you wake up thinking, I got to do that again, and I'm no good in it. And I know when I'm no good. It's okay, but who cares about okay? Anyhow, I worked like hell on it. And I I, I remember I was talking with, somehow I ran into a lawyer who said, I. he said to me that he had had a, a, a case against Roy Cohn, okay. and he lost the case to him. He said, but, and he didn't like him at all, but he couldn't take his eyes off him. And I thought, got it. That's my entrance. That's my entree into Roy Cohn. Play to that strength. Play to that thing about him that you do understand. Aside from his superior intellect. I mean, he was extraordinary. But I thought, and and as soon as that happened, and I became show-offy, and and really relishing the evil of the man, the closer, the deeper you go to the evil, the more the audience, and I can feel it, responded to him. Yes, I thought, oh, that's an interesting thing. It's like I played Mephistopheles a couple of times, and I love him because he's a fictitious character. I mean, some people think he he lives. The point is, (laughs) I relished him. I enjoyed him, like I enjoyed the the Jew of Malta very much because he's so evil. But it's a little on the unreal side, and you can do that, and it makes him sexy, Mm -hmm. and people really respond to that. And I be and I finally accepted that about Roy. I'm going on and on about it because it's one of the interesting processes in in, in the acting profession. I'll stop talking about it now. <laughs> no, 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 please. I I'll, I'll go even deeper because I actually loved you as Roy Cohn. I did not ever feel like I was watching someone doing an impersonation of Roy Cohn as others could easily do. But it surprises me to hear you say this because you are someone I think we can say is familiar with playing villains in certain films. But I've never seen you 
play a villain. Uh, even in Star Trek, Nemesis, even in Name of the Rose, I always see the motivation lurking underneath. You've played lots of wicked men, but you always empathize with the... Ca- I mean, and Salieri, we could go on all day about this. It's the ultimate role in that regard. So it surprises me that you are prejudiced against Roy, and considerably evil man that he was, that that would be a creative stumbling block for you when you seem to be able to identify with these villains for the sake of craft. Yeah. I think that uh, my approach to the work is, uh, (laughs) I don't want to say it's spiritual, but it practically is. I have always thought that if I hadn't become an actor, I would have become a priest. I, uh, I am very spiritual minded. And uh, if you can find that kind of thing, if you look for it in whatever character you play, mm-hmm. I think it makes it much deeper and much richer. Uh, I've found that's true. I've, I've played some evil clerics in my life. Uh, Name of the Rose, for example. Oh, but he, yes. does, he doesn't think he's evil. He's, yeah. he's doing God's work. He's fervent. That's what makes, yeah, yeah. It makes it much more dangerous, of course. And we have that in this country, of course, too. Of course. Fundamentalism exists everywhere. But my, my mom, the ex-nun, always considered artists to have a ministry. And, and I certainly feel like Salieri is the greatest case of that. You know, my, my as a teenager, my, my thesis, I wrote a book report saying that the title of Amadeus refers to Salieri, not Mozart. Because Amadeus means lover of God, and the entire script is about Salieri's relationship with God, not his relationship with Mozart. Yes, exactly. And I, I, I've always felt that uh, Salieri's fight was not with with Mozart at all. His fight was with God. That takes a, a, an extraordinary ego to to choose God as an opponent. And he does. He takes it very seriously. He feels as though he's been shafted. By the way, my mother was Italian, uh, rest her soul, and she was a serious Catholic. And there was a scene where uh, Salieri throws the crucifix into the fire. She was very upset about that. Mm-hmm. She, she knew I was, you know, an actor all my life and practically. And she said, you shouldn't do that. I said, Mom, it's a movie. She says, no, you, you shouldn't do it. And she really was hurt. And I said, I want you to know, Mom, it wasn't me. All you saw was the cross go in. Somebody else threw it in. So she said, (laughs) God forgive me for that lie. (laughs) I mean, it's a great scene. Grazie, signore. You know, but your your mother. Yeah. yeah. Oh, but that that to me as a kid, that was the ultimate thing because he makes a pact with God for success and God doesn't care. So he spends the rest of the script trying to destroy God's instrument of Mozart. But uh, with respect, many productions of the play take this very seriously. It seems that you and for you and Milos Forman knew there was comedy in this. And that's what makes the drama so powerful was that there is always the light touch amidst the sadism. Yeah, the old man is really charming. He's really funny. He's really wicked that way. And I think I would like to bring a touch of that to every character I play because it tricks you, it fools you, it seduces you and uh, it gets you off guard. But also it adds another dimension to the character. I thought the old Salieri was delightful (laughs) talking (laughs) about killing him with his own hands and then 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 and then smiling it was uh, it's funny thank you for noticing i think too many actors take themselves far too seriously and and that that kind of infects the characters there's much sure. more than that 
Well, celebrity can do that too. You, you, you. Instead of taking oh, yeah, the work yeah. seriously, one takes themselves seriously, and how this feels in their overall canon. I, I always heard that um, the legend I heard was that you auditioned for Milos Forman in his apartment, and he made you do it as old Salieri. Not in his apartment. Yes, I, I, I had spoken with him briefly at a meeting, and he seemed not to pay any attention to me. He was on the phone all the time. And then I got a call that he wanted me to look over the script in his apartment. And I did with an actress I knew. And he said, oh, I made an appointment to tape it. That's where the old man's story comes from. When I was doing the taping, when I finished doing what I had prepared, he said, all right, Maureen, I'll do the old man. And I said, I didn't look at it. I didn't study it. Let me have it. No, no, just do it. Do it. Take the script and do it. So I, I went there, and and when I finished, I I looked up to see his reaction, and he was gone. He, he had left, and uh, I thought, well, I I blew it. I mean, that's it. He hated it, and two days later, he called and said, "You are you are my first choice." Anyhow, that's that's that story. That's a great one. There's there's many legends about you getting that role, but I have to say, the producers of The Magic Flute really rolled the dice here, hoping they could get you to do another film that's all about Mozart's music. I kept watching the film thinking, oh my God, it's 40 years since he shot Amadeus, and then I kept realizing, oh my God, Amadeus was how I learned this music as a teenager in the first place. What was it that, that made you say yes to this project? Well, I had... I had I didn't want anything to do with Mozart for years because that's all anybody ever talked about. Yeah. And then as the years passed, I thought, my God, this is this. First of all, it, this this changed my life. For one thing, I, I, I owe it to Mozart and Solieri. I, I'm very defensive about Solieri. Of but course. I thought this thing still lives. It absolutely lives. And the, the movie still lives with many people, young people. And I said, this is a great opportunity to re-examine it from a dis different standpoint. And also, I wanted to see Salzburg. That's another part of my, my career that I like, that I get to travel. And yes. I can, you know, it depends on where the location is, which may determine when, when I go. And I like the material. I liked, I liked the concept. I liked the idea of, of a, a modern, good movie that will entice people who have kids who have never seen any opera to get involved with the music because there's also some modern music too i mean it really is like a kind of a harry potter treatment of mozart i mean very much so i kept thinking there's so much that's familiar in here and so much that's new this this film very much is a musical it's very much an opera and it's very much a sci-fi fantasy i yeah you know, there's, there's so many genres at play at once, and it really works. It's I've never seen one of your films with so much CGI as, as this. Was this shot after you did White Lotus? No, no, no. This was shot before. Mm. This was shot before White Lotus. The idea that it actually has magic in it, they're in a magical land, was a right. great twist, a great idea. Too many people forget. In plays, when you talk about, when you discuss a magical scene or the appearance of a ghost or witches or something. It's not enough really to just say it or describe it or have a witch walk. You got to scare the people. Yes. Or it would be nice, real magic on the stage. A magician who does things that make you go, what? Where did that elephant come from? You know, something that really said, 
And this movie does that. It puts you right into that that country, that magical place. I thought that was brilliant. And uh, I think it worked. It's also a film that really demands to be seen on a big screen. It's it's you know it's great if you watch this at home, but this is if you're looking for a reason to go to the cinema, there's a lot of smart kids who are going to go see this multiple times in a theater. Well, there are a lot of people who don't know that much or care that much about Mozart, except for the movie. But there's, yeah. I'm doing some more of Mozart. It, it happens in Pittsburgh. What are you doing? Uh, I'll be, I'm doing some poetry readings that to accompany. Mozart's beautiful uh, Requiem. I'm doing it in Pittsburgh under Maestro Manfred Honeck, probably one of the, the best conductors in the world, frankly. And uh, I'll be doing it uh, on the 17th, 18th, and 19th in Pittsburgh. Oh, and then we're going to record it. We're going to make a recording of it. But uh, I want, I would love people to bring their kids to that because it's a it's it's a sad thing but it's a beautiful piece of music and the poetry is so great. Anyway, you think you can make it to Pittsburgh? I would love to, uh, I would go to Pittsburgh <laughs> to see you do poetry to Mozart. I remember when you did the narration for the Ring Cycle here back in 1990 and how great that was uh, the combination of the spoken word with the classic opera. Isn't that something? Yeah. Yeah, I work with a lot of orchestras, some great conductors, and it's thrilling to work with a full a full orchestra is just so exciting. I did Oedipus in Chicago with Maestro Levine. 200 voices. Wow. Oh, it was wonderful. I was a bit sorry you didn't sing in this one. Uh, I'm always hoping. I know every couple of decades they get you to do a musical, and I was kind of hoping that you'd get a number in this film. Did you see Three Penny Opera? Uh, I did not. Oh, what, what a good production that was. I had fun. Yeah. I got to sing in that one. Yeah, I mean, you were in the Fantastics, right? Once upon a time, I mean, and McNally as well. That was one of my. That's what was one of my early uh, jobs in New York downtown, ninety nine mm -hmm. seat house. Yeah, uh, on, and it was fun on Sullivan Street. On Sullivan Street, I used to live next door to the theater. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back. Your castmates are very young in this film. I'm curious, were they familiar with Amadeus? Was, was that a way that they could uh, connect to the music? 
Well, so many of them know music, and they really are some really good singers. That they said that that movie was was taught to them when they were in class. They said, "You have, we're going to see this movie," and hmm. uh, it, it's surprising how many music uh, I don't want to say musical students know this film, and it still surprises me. And hmm. uh, they they are not at all intimidated by me. They were. They were very generous to me. I, 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 as I say, I'm pretty much older than anyone in any cast that I do. <laughs> first of all, they're, they're kind of they're amazed at, at my energy, but they also are welcoming. And I'm glad of that because they don't know it, but I'm learning from them as well. And I'm, I'm not being humble. I mean, I'm sincere. I teach from time to time. Yes. Just to keep my hand in it. I'll be teaching a class in Pittsburgh, by the way. But it, it's uh, I get a lot from them. I remember when you were teaching in Brooklyn College. I, I'm, I'm hoping there'll be a sequel about Salieri's School of Music for Boys. I don't know. I do have to say, after after White Lotus, I'm judging you as a father figure much more harshly. And I'd love to ask you about that character work, if I could, for a, for a second. Because I love that character. And I felt that you really, really loved playing this charming, charming, charming chauvinist i could tell watching it that this man's worldview is completely antithetical to how you view the world and yet speaking of villains the pleasure with which you play this old sexist character was so palpable and enjoyable well i i'm a feminist uh have been forever really no no since i left el paso but mm-hmm. i first generation american and i grew up uh under the i guess the I want to say tutelage, but under men like that, Italians and Syrians, and that's the yeah. way they were. And their wives were just, they were like, uh, not, not servants, but pretty much the second, second class. They were there to stay in the kitchen, cook. Mm-hmm. And later around, that was, it was an accepted thing. Doesn't make it right by any means, but that's the way it was. And it had gave me an opportunity to examine it it wasn't hard to examine because I knew these men really didn't have any choice. That's the way they were raised. Yes. I'm glad to that I didn't follow in their footsteps, though. Well, it, it's interesting because so much of the subplot is about the ripple effects your character's behavior has on his very tormented son and his grandson as well. And, and, and in watching exactly. it. Exactly. That, oh, you're exactly well, right. Yeah. I mean, we as the viewers are so offended by Bert's casual old school misogyny. And it seemed like all the female characters in the show just take it with a grain of salt. And I loved how you never let that character slide into cartoonish villainy. The charm was always there in spite of the misogyny. Yes, he he seems to have gotten away with it in the public side, too, because the response from women has been overwhelming. They they really like him, and they all stop me on the street and just love your bird. How can they yeah. say that? He he was really a chauvinist pig, you know. I mean, honestly, I think we're so starved for well spoken, charming old white men. I, I honestly <laughs> do. The character was refreshing compared to what we get in politics. 
<laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, I, I would. I would be. I would be uh, grotesquely remiss if I didn't ask you to speak a little bit about the autopsy, one of the eight episodes in Cabinet of oh. Curiosities. We had uh, Guillermo del Toro here a couple of months ago, and he and I just went on for a solid ten minutes about the physical work you did in one of the most gruesome and horrific short films I, I as a horror fan, have ever seen. I don't want to give it away too much because everyone needs to watch this, but you are a, a medical examiner who has cancer and only a few months to live, and you walk into an autopsy situation with something very evil, and I mean, the violence is almost unthinkable in that script. I'm dying to know what was your reaction when you first read it. Well, for one thing, first of all, I'll do anything for Guillermo. Yeah. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's another kind of, he's another thing. Yeah. And we both speak Spanish, so that was a, that was a pleasure. But uh, he didn't direct that, but he directed me mm-hmm. in Mimic. But uh, that's right. We became friend- friendly. But uh, I'm in very good shape, and it paid off in that in that movie. I just <laughs> devoted myself to my. I'm sorry. I didn't do anything different in that than I did in everything I do. I tried my best. It doesn't always work, but when it does, it's very rewarding. I wish I could tell you that it does work every time, but that's a big lie. I tell you, sometimes you bat your head against it, you try and try, and it ain't coming, baby. That's so subjective, though. It's so subjective. There have to be cases where you thought you didn't pull it off, but your director or your audiences did, right? No, 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 no. You're absolutely right. Sometimes in the theater, when I think that I was just terrible, people come back glowing. And when I think I'm wonderful, sometimes the same thing. They come back and they go, (laughs) isn't it funny? You're right. It is subjective. What can I do about that? I mean, does the the celebrity must help, I guess. The celebrity must give you a, a, a level of insulation, almost something extra hard you have to work to overcome. You have to try extra hard to not rest on your laurels. I don't know. I've always felt that way about myself. I just uh, sometimes when the, I, I, I don't, maybe so, maybe so. The, the celebrity, which came rather suddenly with uh, Amadeus, was, uh, was not easy to take because I've, I can tell you, I know that I became insufferable. I became a kind of person I don't want to be around. That that was who I was for a while. I just thought I knew everything because I believed all those things people were saying about me. You know, it was right. world famous, you know, and blah, 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 and all these offers. And I must be wonderful because everybody tells me I am. So I am. And I became, I think, possibly slightly insufferable. But I grew out of it. Did that make you a better actor? understanding that you didn't like how you would become because i look at you know they they all talk about the oscar and and i mean rita moreno has told me several times winning the oscar is no guarantee of future work she says she's proof that winning an oscar doesn't guarantee you'll always work and in looking at your career since the oscar i love the roles you've taken i love how you become one of our greatest character actors and i'm wondering if this self-realization uh, that you were, as you say, uns- insufferable, if that gave you a humility that made you a better artist. Yes, because the humility came out of my refusing role after role, money notwithstanding, just simply saying, no, I'm above that. It's got to be as good as Amadeus. And after offers no longer come in, because, you know, they, no one no one wants to come back to you again to hear no. Right. And uh, finally, I guess... I guess I'm wrong. I guess that that teaches you humility. Then you have to go back and start struggling again, looking for roles, just to pay the rent. 
doing stuff that is not quite up to your idea of snuff, but pay some money to pay the rent. And that becomes, that's a that's a taste of humility. And I think it's good for you. I suggested, I'm trying to put together a book. It's very hard to write. But I suggested that the uh, Academy of Motion Pictures Arts accompany the Oscar with a wreath. It's in the old Roman custom. When a conquering hero came back to the streets of Rome, he would be accompanied by a servant who had a wreath above his head and would whisper to him. And what did he say? (laughs) Famous fleeting. Remember you and you are human. Remember you are human. Famous. Yeah, exactly. And I could have used that. (laughs) It's all right. I'll get another one. And the next one I win, I will not be a miserable man. I'll be a wonderful guy. It seems like you mentioned your spirituality earlier, and I know you grew up Orthodox Christian. I know you were an altar boy, but I also know you were a wild kid who used to steal cars when you lived in El Paso. So, yes, yes. Not, not proud of it. I'm curious, how how has belief or, or organized religion or, or faith, whichever you want to call it, how has that affected you as an artist? And, and how have you grown in that way? Well, it, my as I mentioned, my mother was very religious and the, uh, I have a feeling that my taste for the theater, my love for the theater, came from my religion. Because the Orthodox religion is is a beautiful thing. And it has music, and it has a playwright. It has a form. And it's a, it's a consistency that you look forward to being part of. It's a performance that you want to be part of after a while. And you miss when you're not doing it. And uh, I, I guess it's kind of, as I say, acting, but with a very strong presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of his actual existence, so that part of that involves imagination. And it's it, to, to believe in a, a religion as firmly as that takes a great deal of courage, and uh, it's, it's hard in, in the face of tragedy to remain a believer. Um, I lost both of my brothers, military stuff, and I never knew how my mother survived it because she was devoted to her children. I mean, Italian mama, but it had to be her religion. And I really respected that. And and I feel that maybe that's partly why I feel about my, my work. It's almost religious. But I also insist on having a good time because you know, it's called a play. The people yes. actors forget play. <laughs> I, I know, sir, that you recently went through a, a, a terrible loss and, and your wife has left us after 60 years of marriage. I read many times over the years about your relationship with her. And I, I hope you don't mind my asking, but has the work helped you in this time? Has the work and the subsequent promotion of the work been a way of on a spiritual level, working through a time of loss. That's exactly what it is. I consider the promotion of these projects my work. And uh, at first, I had decided to refuse to do that. But I realized that it was my way out of my grief. This is a a lot of this that I've been doing for the past several weeks is acting. Of course. Uh, I don't. That's that's the only big. Otherwise, it would just simply be hypocritical for me to be mourning my wife and doing all these things and making jokes. That really is leading me out of my mourning. 
Yes. Yeah, we were together for more than 62, 60, anyway, a long time. And uh, it's not easy. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> I know. I know she was sick for a, a long time. And I'm a, I've been a Greenwich Village neighbor of yours for a bit. And I, I just want to say how much I admire the, the devotion and care you gave to her and the support that she gave you for your entire career. I mean, you were, you were married to her when you were studying with Uta Hagen, right? Like this, this was a real partnership. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She was a rock. Never doubted me. Even when I doubted myself, she was there. It was uh, another lucky thing in my life, probably easily the luckiest thing that ever happened to me. I mean, absolutely. A guy, when I was leaving El Paso said, here's a, Here's a girl you should look up. Here's her number. That was how I met. That's how I met. That her. was it. Someone recommended her. <laughs> yeah, so I called her and we never left each other. But that ain't luck or gifts from God. It's work too. It's love. Yeah. It's luck and it's work. I thank you for sharing that with us. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you've you've done Lear. You've done Shylock. You've done Malvolio. Are there roles you still want to play? Oh yeah, I'd Who like do to do play? some more. Well, I'd like to do some more Chekhov. I'd like to do some Moliere. I'd like to do a lot of things. I I think I would like to do Lear one more time while yeah. I have the strength. But uh, I think I'll save up The Tempest. I don't know why I keep avoiding that one. But there's yeah, a lot of things. I, the, I, I love the Greeks. I really want to do the Greeks again. The Greeks are, there's a reason that they've lasted for, you know, almost you know, close to what, 2,500 years? There's a reason for that. And I want to, the only way you can really discover what makes a classic a classic is by doing it. I mean, personally, yeah. discover the roles. And that's why they should be done. Uh, Brecht. I mean, I've done Brecht. It's fabulous. Yeah. It's just wonderful. A lot of things to do. And there's nothing one in particular. For me, the best thing of all, though, is original scripts. They ain't nothing like putting something out there that's never been done before to see if it, see if it flies. See if all your hopes are going to be dashed to the ground it's worth a shot you find out what you're made of yeah creating a character for which there is no reference is i guess right. a, an even greater challenge than pulling off your leer absolutely and, and, and you're absolutely right there's no reference and i've got one that we were gonna do but the pandemic canceled it and we're gonna put it on it's uh it's based on the uh, conversations between norman mailer and his son john buffalo mailer it's, oh. it's all recorded, all recorded, uh, and uh, they're all his words. And he says some pretty prescient things. 2004, it was, that they recorded it. One of his yeah. lines is, you can't stop a man who is never embarrassed by himself. Pretty strong language. Oh, that pertains to politics quite a bit, too. I would love to see that. I loved their interviews together. And I got to say, it's it's a real pleasure, sir. I've wanted to have you on this show here for years. It is a great delight. I, I hope we can get you back up to the studio sometime. I'd love to talk craft and go even deeper on some of these roles. In the meantime, my profound thanks. Everyone needs to see F. Marie Abraham in The Magic Flute. Again, it is unlike anything you have ever seen in cinemas. I'm going to assume you people are already up to date on White Lotus. Sir, thank you so very much for joining us. Again sometime. Thank Real you. Real pleasure.